Specialty Story, session number 144. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I want to thank you for taking some time to join me today. Today I have a great guest, a GI and surgical pathologist who has been out of training now for three years. We have Dr. Rashna Manye on the podcast talking about her journey to pathology, her journey specifically to GI and surgical pathology. We'll dive down into those recesses, that niche of pathology, and really find out her journey, her path, and her her path to path (laughs) we will talk about today. I hope you take a little bit out of this episode today, whether you're interested in path or not, you can learn how a pathologist will best work with you if path isn't in your future, but you never know, will you? We start the conversation by finding out how Dr. Meunier became interested in pathology. Well, I basically went through medical school not knowing what I wanted to do, um, And I sort of went through all the rotations and didn't fall in love with any of them, which is not to say that's how everyone should get into pathology. (laughs) You can love it right away. But I just hadn't discovered it. Hadn't, you know, it's not usually part of the required rotations, Mm -hmm. which I think is a shame. But I just hadn't loved anything yet. Everything on the floor just didn't feel right. I didn't, I just didn't see myself doing that. So I kind of did some soul searching. What's a what's my learning style? And I realized I'm a really visual person. Um, so I did a two week rotation in pathology and said, Ooh, this is definitely for me. So I, um, applied to multiple residency programs and did a residency. And then to answer your question about the GI and surge path fellowship, um, it, it was a really uh, good fit because I knew that I wanted to probably be in private practice and having the surge path, which kind of means almost all types of cases uh, you'll see it was a good fit because it gave me training that leaves me ready to sign out your general stuff that you would see in a community setting. What do you think it was about just the, besides the visual side of it, what do you think it was that, that really drew you to the pathology world that you, you weren't able to connect with during any of your other rotations? Yeah. Um, I think a big part of each pathology case is kind of like it's a little puzzle and you're trying to solve it with only having a certain number of clues or hints. So that might include if they have a previous history of something, um, what does the picture look like uh, physically on the body? Maybe if it's a skin, what does that look like? If it's a GI, what does their colonoscopy look like? And so it's kind of like a little uh, puzzle that you're trying to solve for each one. So I kind of like that problem-solving aspect of it. And it's not to say that other aspects of medicine, like clinical medicine or being a hospitalist, wouldn't have that. But this kind of just gives you that puzzle-solving time on your own, where you got to kind of get to think about it on your own time, read about it on your own time. Um, Just like a, I don't know, I think they're fun little puzzles. 
Yeah. For a lot of students, the a lot of them have this aversion to pathology, I think, having, having talked to so many, because they they think about going into medicine and the, the patient care and that patient interaction, and then they assume pathology is like no patient interaction, right? We have this stereotype of the pathologist like down in the basement. Did, did that concern ever come up for you? Um, and, and as you went through the process and you realized that that's not what pathology is, how did, how did you kind of overcome the, that kind of stereotype that's out there? I was actually really worried about it because I thought I'm a people person. I like interacting with people all day and I'm not going to have that patient experience. Mm. So I, I was worried in the beginning. Um, but I realized that I, I really don't miss it. And the interactions that you have with other people, not necessarily patients, kind of compensates for that. So although I may not be seeing a patient every day, I am talking to clinicians multiple times a day on the phone or talking to someone in radiology. Um, we present at tumor boards where different physicians meet, like a radiologist, oncologist, etc., to discuss a patient's case. So I still feel like I'm part of a team and interacting with other physicians. So even though I don't have that direct patient contact personally, uh, I think the the benefits of the job kind of outweigh that one downside. Yeah. What do you think are some good traits for someone to be a, a good pathologist? And if there's anything more specific to the GI or surgical pathology? I think if you have an interest in continuous learning, that's very helpful in choosing a pathology career because nomenclature is constantly changing. There are updates, things, classifications change as more molecular uh, diagnostics come into play and you need to stay up to date and keep reading and talking with your peers and reading the most recent journal articles to sort of stay up to date. So if you're somebody that kind of likes to just learn about it in medical school, close the book and call it a day and continue to practice. It might not be the best specialty choice for you, but if you, uh, you know, are interested in that continuous learning process, uh, it might be something to consider. What are some of the, the special cases potentially that as a, as a fellowship trained pathologist in, in the GI and surgical pathology, what, what sort of special cases or tissues and, and other stuff are you looking at? Um, in GI, there's a broad range. So the most basic would be a biopsy from, say, a colonoscopy or endoscopy. Um, so if the gastroenterologist does either of those and finds some polyps, they'll take out those polyps and you'll look at them to make sure they don't have um, pre-malignant or malignant features. Um, so they can be very small, you know, just a millimeter or less in, in size. But then it ranges to larger resections, like a por big portion of the colon you might get out. You might receive um, a pancreas from a Whipple surgery, uh, liver, liver biopsies in GI as well. Um, that's sort of some of the things that you'll see in GI. And as for surgical pathology, it's really almost any piece of the body that a clinician, whether it's a surgeon or somebody in the office, removes from the body. So really almost all sites for surgical pathology. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, I usually uh, come in and 
if I haven't finished things from the day before, I'll start working on those. My schedule is pretty flexible in that it's kind of a job where you work until the case is done, sort of, and you can kind of manage how you want to organize those things. So if anything is left over from the day before that was waiting for immunostains or other tests that couldn't be finished the prior day, I'll work on those. And throughout the day, I'll just continuously receive slides, look at them under the microscope, um, find out cases. Uh, We have a couple clinical responsibilities as well. When I say clinical, I mean clinical pathology. So if there are issues um, overnight that happen in blood bank or hematology or chemistry, um, we're often brought those type of questions. Um, Some days of the week, I'll present at a tumor board. Uh, So like I said previously, uh, oncologists and radiologists, uh, patient uh, navigators, et cetera, people who are helping manage a patient's cancer care will all get together and discuss certain patients. So I'll have prepared a PowerPoint ahead of time to share with the group. Um, And then I'll basically just continue to sign out slides um, until I go home. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah, definitely. I have um, like pretty good hours. I think I can usually come in if I want it as late as 8.30 or 9. And on a good day, I'll be done by 5. And a later day might be 6.30. But it's nice and flexible. And so if I you know, need to leave early one day, then I can just come in early the next day. So I do have a lot of time outside of work to pursue extracurricular activities, um, but it really depends where you are. So that's not to say that all community hospitals will be like that. It depends on the workload and the number of pathologists to divide that workload. What was the the decision for um, for you as you were trying to figure out your career and your where you wanted to work to to go out to the community versus staying in academics? So when you're in your residency and fellowship, traditionally, they are usually in large academic centers. So you'll get a lot of exposure to that and not so much probably in, you probably won't get as much exposure to the community practice. Um, So a side note is that if you are a pathology resident and you're considering uh, a community practice and you can take some kind of outside rotation, maybe it's affiliated with your residency program, I highly recommend that. So I had a little bit of experience in a community hospital during my residency, and I liked the workflow. It feels like a more relaxed pace, and there's not that pressure to produce academic papers or research. And personally, I just didn't have a you know, very strong background in research. I hadn't done a PhD or uh, participated in, in a massive amount of research. Um, so I kind of felt the community was a better fit for me, um, dealing with a broad variety of cases is more likely to happen in community practice where in academia, you, the, the trend is to become subspecialized. So that means that pathologists in an academic center usually will do mostly cases in their specialty that they've done a fellowship in. So, for example, if you did a GI fellowship, you might be the GI guy and Mm. you would do all the GI cases um, or, you know, a portion of them. 
So I just kind of wanted to make sure that my uh, base covered everything so that I, I was able to sign out everything. Yeah. Yeah. The, the subspecialty path that we are on is, is crazy. Like you, you'll have the, the GI pathologist at some point or be like, I only do like the splenic flexure, <laughs> like only biopsies yeah. from the splenic flexure. That's all I look at. <laughs> I don't know if it goes that. <laughs> one day, one day it will. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I always, I always make the joke about orthopods cause that's what I wanted to do originally. I'm like, it will get, we're going to get to a point where the hand surgeons will be like, I only operate on left pinkies. That's all I do. <laughs> that's my specialty. Um, yeah, I mean, we're joking about it, but I, I do have friends that are in academia pathology and they are a little concerned, you know, they're, they're, they might be one of the top people in cytology, for example. Mm -hmm. And they, they I think they have a little bit of fear that if they had to get another job for unforeseen circumstances that involved other organs or another, you know, if they had to go into community practice, they're like, well, I haven't, I haven't seen a skin yeah. in five years. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough when you lose those skills and, and, uh, don't, don't practice that. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's difficult. And who can blame them? Like that's how the academic world is mm -hmm. organized a little bit, you know? Yeah. What does call look like for you? Um, call is a combination of being on call for anatomic and clinical pathology. So anatomic call, an example would be a frozen section um, during off hours. So, uh, you know, a frozen section is where in the, maybe in the middle of surgery, if it's the middle of the night or something, the surgeon's doing an appendectomy and he sees something that he thinks could be a tumor and he wants to know, he needs to know what it is. Cause that might change his management. Does he take this whole thing out, etc. Mm -hmm. So if it's going to change their management, a frozen section, um, might be done in which we quickly, uh, look at the tissue and, cut it into very thin sections, similar to the way we normally do, but you can just do it very rapidly, you know, in 20 minutes or less. And so we would, uh, we could come in and do a frozen section for them. That's pretty rare, um, in our community, in our practice, but it could happen. Mm -hmm. And then the clinical side of the call, uh, has to do with, uh, sometimes blood bank calls. Like if there's a transfusion reaction, um, questions about what type of blood to give the patient, but actually one of the most common ones that we have is for a chemistry value that would be deemed a critical value. So say a potassium is very low or very high or a patient has a really low glucose or something. And um, the people that normally call in those critical results cannot get in touch with the ordering physician or the physician taking care of the patient. Then they call us as the pathologist to get some help and try to get somebody to quote unquote accept that value so that uh, you know another physician is aware of that value and can you know, treat the patient or tell them to come to the ER, et cetera. Yeah. So basically the, the worst case, not worst case, but the last option, if we can't get in touch with them is to call the patient ourselves, which I've done. And so there you go. There's a little clinical patient contact. <laughs> And, you know, you tell them you should go to the ER, this value is, is inappropriately low or high yeah. and then kind of coordinate their care from there. Yeah. 
Are we at a point yet, or do you see a point in the future where uh, our ability to scan uh, tissue and scan slides like these, these frozen sections coming in to be able to to read at home? Are, are we to a point where we can do that yet? So uh, yes and no. So there is digital pathology. Uh, there we do have the capability to scan whole slide images so that you can look at that image at home on your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but currently, in my experience, the infrastructure to implement that doesn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. So scanning those slides can be uh, can take a little while. It may or may not be more costly than doing it the traditional way. And uh, another issue uh, is that the storage space for each of those images is supposed to be large. And if you're institution doesn't have a way to save all of that on the cloud or wherever um, that can be tricky too. So the technology is there and some places have implemented this. I don't know if they're doing it at home necessarily. They are doing it in the office, Um, but it's for the average community pathologist. It's not likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah. uh, Given limited resources. Interesting. Okay. What's the training path look like after medical school to become a, a GI and, and surgical pathology trained pathologist? After medical school, um, you would do a residency in pathology. Pathology residency kind of has three options. It can be AP. So AP stands for anatomic pathology. CP stands for clinical pathology. Um, so you can do an AP only, anatomic pathology only, or a clinical pathology only. Or you can do what is the most common option, APCP, which is a combination of both. So typically, if you do an APCP residency, that's four years. And I believe if you were going to do an AP or CP only, maybe it's three, but uh, it's a more rare option. Um, so you would you would do those uh, four years. And after that, you, the typical scenario is that you would apply for a fellowship. A fellowship is not necessary in order to become, you know, a board-certified pathologist. You can go straight from your residency into practice. But these days, it's more common to do a fellowship. Um, It's, you know, you're told it makes you a more competitive applicant if you have specialized training in something. Um, As for the GI surge path combination, it was sort of a rare uh, fellowship combo that I'm not sure how many places have it. Uh, University of Massachusetts was unique in having that one. Um, but usually they are just one, you know, like just GI or just surge path or just cytopathology, dermatopathology, et cetera. And usually those fellowships are one year. Some of them, rare ones, are two years, but for the most part, they're one year. Mm-hmm. And the new trend, it seems that people are doing more than one fellowship. Um, so... Because why not? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what? Um, why? Why more than one fellowship? Well, I think it's probably a combination of factors. Um, you want to make yourself look as competitive as possible. So, a lot of jobs are asking for a specific subspecialty, mm. and if you're only GI trained, then you're probably only looking at those ones that say GI. And if you're GI and derm path, then you get to look at all the jobs that are calling for either one of those. Um, I, I think it, 
maybe it's a phase or a trend, but yeah. uh, I think one is enough, to be honest. You should be able to get a job with just one. But mm. people are continuing on to get more than one. And I don't know. I guess a year is pretty quick, so <laughs> not yeah. too bad. Yeah, why not? So the competitiveness of going into pathology and then and then into these fellowship training spots how competitive are these um fellowship training spots after pathology residency um it sort of depends on which subspecialty you're going to choose so for example um dermatopathology is slightly more competitive actually it's probably much more competitive than some of the others um primarily because the applicants are not only coming from a pathology residency training, but they could also be coming from a dermatology training. So dermatology residents are competing with pathology residents for those same spots. So that one's pretty competitive. And then the others sort of vary. um, Maybe I would guess that they're all kind of on the same level or playing field. Uh, I think if you are willing to go to any part of the country or if you're not too limited by where you want to do your fellowship, it's not too difficult to get one. Like you, you will find one. For the osteopathic students listening to this, what sort of negative bias is there in the pathology world or what do they have to do to overcome that negative bias? I haven't personally perceived any negative bias against osteopathic candidates uh in my world they're pretty much the same do and md Mm. and i know plenty of them and it doesn't really ever come up or i I mean i can't speak for their experience yeah but i haven't noticed any reason that it would be more difficult for them okay what do you wish the primary care providers or or the the surgeons maybe in your case what do you, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help them help their patients and help them help you a little bit more sometimes i wish that they could just come and spend 30 minutes with me and see what we do in different parts of the lab so they could understand why it takes longer for something to be done than they would like so mm-hmm. for example um, when I say like, oh, I need to order an immunostain and that's going to um, delay the case by one day. Well, that's because they have to take the tissue and recut it and put it on a slide. And then they have to put it in a machine that will stain it. And if you can't do them one by one, they need to go in batches with the rest that need to go that day. And then somebody has to, you know, put it, I don't know. There's a lot to every step. and if you haven't been in a lab, you don't know that that step actually takes a lot of manpower and a lot of time. Yeah. Another thing I always wish that I could explain to certain surgeons and many of them do know this already. So it's only a handful that maybe don't is that the quality of a section is much worse on a frozen section. So I can't see the nuclear detail as well on a frozen section as I can a permanent section. So even though uh, frozens are nice because you're going to get a result, hopefully, in less than 20 minutes, it's degrading the quality of what I can see under the side. And mm. if 
you don't give me any more tissue to submit for permanent sections, then I can I only have this sort of damaged tissue to do the rest of my work on. And that's why sometimes if a unexpected frozen comes and I'll say to them, is the result of your frozen going to change uh, your management right now intraoperatively? And if the answer is yes, then the frozen is warranted. But if it's not, and they just want to, you know, tell the patient when they come out of surgery, if it was benign or malignant, it's really not best practice to do a frozen section. Okay. I think one of the other, the other big things that I've heard a few times from other pathologists is that a lot of physicians think it's just, here's a clump of tissue, go tell me what it is. And, and they don't really do a great job of describing what they're looking for, what they're thinking about, uh, where, where this tissue came from. All of that stuff really plays an important part, it seems, for pathologists. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, absolutely. Our clinicians here do a pretty good job, so I'm pretty grateful. But um, I've been in other scenarios where they really don't tell you why they're doing it. Um, they just assume that you have access to that medical record explaining why they need a biopsy or excision, or um, they think we can kind of just do it without that information. Mm -hmm. And that's really very likely not the case. So if, a, if for example, if you have a metastatic tumor and I don't know that the patient has a history of a renal cell carcinoma five years ago, I, I may not consider that in my differential diagnosis. Um, so it's really important to know, does the patient have a previous tumor from somewhere else um, in the past? Or if you're doing like a GI biopsy um, and they don't tell you if it's for a polyp versus a random colon biopsy, uh, it, it really changes how what my diagnosis will be because I'll be for just a flat random biopsy. I'll be wondering about inflammatory bowel disease, um, microscopic colitis, etc. But if it's a polyp, I'm I'm gonna tell you what kind of polyp it is, you know. So the clinical history that they tell us really makes a big difference. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into your career? Um, you know, my fellowship in surgical and GI was a, a really great fellowship and I learned a lot from there. I wish that in residency, I had paid a little more attention to exactly how to sign out cases, like the, the, the small details that you don't think matter, like so when you're in residency, you think about the big cancer cases and how you're going to gross them, you know, which means doing the physical cutting. And a lot of your time is spent doing the grossing. And you also then sign out or you try to sign out the case. Um, well, I should say you try to write up the case and present it to your attending. And we're pretty good at that for cancer cases. But the little benign ones, like a benign gallbladder, a benign appendix, a hernia sac, all these things, these little, we call them ditzels, that seem easy and, you know, benign, who cares? On your first day in practice, you're like, oh, how do I sign out that hernia again? What, what word should I say? So I sort of wish that I paid attention to the things that seemed like they didn't matter. Um, I mean, of course, now I, I know how to do it and it's fine. But in your first year in practice, you're like, oh, I really should have paid attention to the, the boring <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it it's always seems to catch people. Like even, even for me, that's... 
like starting off medical school was hard because I went in with this mindset. I, I, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. Why am I studying this? This has nothing to do with being an orthopedic surgeon. So you just kind of try to throw it out the window and then you realize, oh, it's, it's kind of all important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a GI and surgical pathologist? I kind of like my work day. So it's sort of like I have a big list of things to do, which means the cases that I need to look at. And as I go through them, I check them off a list. And it's sort of satisfying to do that little problem solving puzzle session for each one. And I also like learning about cases as I go through them. So if I have some really strange tumor, just reading about it and learning what the staging is like, et cetera. Just, I don't know, constant learning is, mm. is exciting. What do you like the least? Um, I really don't like to gross. So grossing is when you are cutting the specimen. So for example, if you have a lung, like, like a whole lung lobectomy comes down, you need to cut the specimen into many slices and then you'll look for what the, where, if there's tumor, what, what it looks like, describe it, um, what color is it, what consistency, measure the distance to the margins. And then you dictate that or, or type it all up into a portion of the report called the gross description. Um, luckily, we have a pathology assistant who does that for us 90% of the time. But if she's off or on vacation, um, then the pathologists take turns doing that in her place. And I just <laughs> don't like it that much. So that's one aspect um, to be aware of that there is in residency, there's a lot of grossing. And depending on where you practice in the future, there may or may not be. So some pathologists do all their own grossing. Um, so if, if you don't like that aspect, make sure in the job interview, you ask how much of that is involved. So that's the one thing that I have to do once in a while I don't really like. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of pathology or, or maybe even more specifically GI and surgical pathology to, to warrant letting students know that, hey, this is on the horizon. Maybe it'll change your decision to go into this field. And obviously the, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is, is the, the fact that we have kind of big data and machine learning and, and AI coming into the space. How, how much do you think that's going to impact future pathologists? It's hard to say. So like you said, AI does exist. Computer learning is there. They have things that they're working on now. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that it does not completely replace the pathologist. And I don't think that it will in my lifetime and yeah. probably a lifetime of a current medical student, because I think you still need the pathologist to confirm the diagnosis and do other things that machine learning will take a while to learn how to do. Um, but that's not to say that it, it won't come into play. I, I think it will. We just have to make sure that as pathologists, we are at the forefront of being sort of like the ambassadors of that knowledge. So if, even if a machine can tell you where the cancer is and what type, um, maybe we should have a role in how exactly it's used or utilized. The other big thing um, to be aware of is that molecular diagnoses or molecular 
um, results are sort of changing the landscape of pathology. So tumor types are, you know, were traditionally classified based on how they look, their histology, which is what most of our job is now. But as the molecular signatures of different tumors are discovered, the classifications can change. Um, so I think paying attention to molecular diagnostics during your medical school and residency is important. Don't just brush off that molecular rotation. Try to sort of keep in touch with it a little bit. And again, even though maybe the scientist in the lab who, or usually actually it's a pathologist who's the director of molecular might be in charge of that aspect, knowing how to use that information, especially as it becomes more prevalent, will be an important role for pathologists. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be doing what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. For the student listening to this who is interested in a career in pathology or learning more about it, what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for them? I would say in medical school, just pay attention to everything. You may think, like you said earlier, this is not relevant to me. This is, I don't see how this could help, but you really never know. So even if you're thinking about being in pathology and you're on your OB rotation, delivering a baby and you're like, oh, this is not relevant. Well, actually you might as a pathologist get that placenta in the lab and you're going to have to gross it or sign it out. And basically everything you learn may have some role in your future. So kind of keep that in mind, pay attention to things, even when they don't seem that relevant. And the same goes for when you're in residency, there's a lot of emphasis in residency on grossing and you're sort of evaluated largely in part by how well you do on that grossing because you're providing that service to the attendings. Um, but at the end of the day, how good a grocer you are is not necessarily going to be indicative of how good a pathologist you are. So when you're in residency, really paying attention to how cases are signed out, um, what mistakes did you learn from? So if you, you know, stage the tumor as T2 and then you learned that it was T3, learn why so that you learn keeping in mind that I'm going to be sitting in front of this microscope one day all by myself and you kind of pay attention to the things that are important. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. Rashna Manier about her path, talking about her path to GI and surgical pathology. Hope you got something useful out of our episode today. If pathology is something you are interested in, just go to the Google and try to find local pathologists potentially that you can shadow. Go check out when once COVID is over and we can start traveling again and having conferences again. Find out when maybe the next pathology conferences that you can get to. Uh, or just reach out and have some conversations with pathologists that uh, you can do over Skype or Zoom or, or a phone call. A regular old phone call. You don't have to do a video call, even though everyone wants to do video calls these days. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. I hope you are staying safe and I hope... You have a great week. I'll talk to you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.